It's a great pleasure to, to welcome uh, Mike Thompson, who's a senior lecturer in Hispanic Studies from the University of, of Durham. Uh, again, I've known Mike as a friend for, for many years. and uh, Mike's a, somebody who works mainly in, in contemporary theatre, a lot on politics and, and, and contemporary theatre. Recently. Uh, recently. Uh, and Mike's going to be talking today about reception of Bernard Alba inside, inside Spain and censorship. Thank you, David. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here and to wrap up this wonderful day of discussions. Um, I suppose I'm connecting most directly with what David was saying at the beginning of the day about um, reception of Lorca's theatre and the utility of plays uh, and particular performances to audiences. And I was interested by that word utility. <laughs> it sounds a bit off-putting in a sense. But I, I, I guess we know what he, he meant, that it's, um, it's uh, and particularly as he expanded it by talking about, what was it, capturing the imagination or something like that. Um, and so I'm going to just give some examples of things that were happening to Lorca's theatre in Spain in the period after his death and after the war. Um, <clears throat> we've been talking about um, Lorca's role as an innovator, um, as a key feature in an avant-garde in the 1920s and 1930s, and being disgusted with the theatre of that time. Um, if he had been around to see Spanish theatre in the 1940s and 50s, he would have been even more disgusted. Um, and uh, it's, in a sense, a good thing that he wasn't. Um, I'm particularly going to be looking at censors as readers of Lorca's plays and as people who are conditioning performances of Lorca's plays or totally preventing performances of Lorca's plays in, in the first place. Um, and so I'll be referring to a couple of different productions, but most of all showing you some examples of comments from censors' reports on proposed productions. So the people who were part of the um, institution, the regime, the political structure to some extent, but they were also part of the theatrical and literary worlds as well. Those censors were... Uh, journalists who wrote the, the, the reviews on the night after the performance. Um, they were directors and writers themselves, some of them. They were also priests and friars, quite a lot of them, and we'll see a fair presence of, of ecclesiastical censorship here. Uh, so they were, some of them, operating quite a, a sort of double life, that they were operating in the cultural field themselves, but at the same time being part of this oppressive state structure that was constraining cultural activity and uh, suppressing performances of plays by people like Lorca. Um, a quick run through some uh, of the performances and the attempted performances um, of La Casa de Bernarda Alba. Um, I will make a couple of remarks about other plays, but it's really Bernarda Alba that I'm concentrating on here. <clears throat> and it's the, the censor's comments on La Casa de Bernarda Alba that are the crucial thing. Lorca constitutes an interesting example for the study of censorship in Franco's Spain um, because his work is, is potentially present all the way through um, with a lot of different people trying to stage it and because he had such a, a political reputation in his own right. So there is the, 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 the fact of what is in the texts and what people were trying to do with them, but there's also the ever-present fact of, of Lorca and the Lorca legend out there as well, having an impact on all of this. Um, somebody did try 
to stage La Casa de Bernarda Alba in 1943, and we'll see a couple of examples of the sort of censor's remarks that gave rise to it being banned. Um, the world premiere was the one in 1945, the famous Margarita Shilgu one. Um, it appears that Alfonso Sastre and a few friends in, in their group La Vaca Flaca tried to put on a production in 1948, but there's, there's no file on that one and very little sign. It's just sort of anecdotal references exist to that one. Um, what's turned out to be the Spanish premiere of La Casa de Bernarda Alba in 1950 um, was this very small scale um, semi-professional production um, that was done by uh, Jose Gordon and Jose Maria de Quinto um, in a rather peculiar episode in which it seems that the regime more or less allowed it by accident. <laughs> and this was a production that was for a long time not really recognized as the estreno of the House of Bernarda Alba. Um, because, largely because at the time it was largely hushed up. It was a curious event in which they seemed to have al allowed it to go through, but then immediately repented of having done so. And uh, apparently the d director general of cinema and theatre went around the theatre um, telling the critics who were present not to report on it the following day. They were not supposed to write reviews. So it's a, an interesting little episode that um, of La Casa de Bernarda Alba sort of very cautiously almost getting its way into the consciousness of the Spanish theatre going public, but not quite making it. Uh, it was a very small theatre, not very many people got in, a lot of people didn't manage to get in. And it was going to be very high profile, but then wasn't allowed to be. Um, what this episode starts to um, remind us of as well is an international dimension of the Lorca issue, the Lorca legend. Um, the Time magazine correspondent in Spain, I don't think he was present at the, uh, at the performance, but he heard about the, the episode of a production having been more or less suppressed as soon as it, be, it had been started, um, and then published a story in Time magazine and other newspapers and magazines in other countries picked up on it. So it became a little international cause célèbre very briefly um, before it sort of got forgotten about. Um, in a way, the regime sort of won that one because, because people did forget about that production, largely. Um, but on the other hand, it, you know, it did happen, it was recorded, and there was a memory of it. Um, it was only one night, because that is the way that a lot of Teatro de Cámara, studio theatre productions, were authorised in those days. Um, <clears throat> you had to submit your text in advance throughout the Franco period and right up to 1978, um, they would get one or two or three censors to read the thing um, and write little reports and offer their views on whether it should be staged. Um, and then it could be authorised, but with cuts. It could be authorised only for particular kinds of venue. It could be authorised only for particular places. Um, there was a sort of local dimension to censorship whereby they would sometimes consult the local authorities and the local church authorities as to whether it would be appropriate to stage this play in Zaragoza, um, whereas it might be okay in, in Madrid or Barcelona. <laughs> so there is all these ins and outs of censorship. Um, and some of the very interesting things that people were trying to do were on this small-scale level of the teatros de cámara y ensayo, um, who were operating at a level that, that was tolerated to some extent by the censorship system. Um, they thought it was okay. You could authorize a, a, a controversial play because it was only going to be one night, it was only going to be in a small venue, it was going to be mostly the 
the, the members of a particular theatre club who would see it, but a commercial production was going to be a very different matter altogether. Big theatre, ordinary mainstream audience, no, definitely not. So they allowed this one through, but only just. Um, a couple of other small groups tried to stage the play La Casa de Bernard Alba in Spain, but um, for some reason, those ones seem to have just sort of disappeared, the 1953 ones. Um, they were likely to get authorized at that point, according to the documentation, but somehow it didn't happen. Other factors came into play. The one that was controversial and notorious was the 1961 production. Um, Luis Escobar was a big name, and this was going to be a national tour, uh, a, a state-sponsored theater tour. And that was the one where the censors, especially the, the ecclesiastical censors, had the most direct impact. They said, no way, we're stopping this. Still in 1961. Um, <clears throat> only a couple of years later, 1964, or it was submitted for, for authorization in, at late 1963, um, then it was authorized and it was staged, and that was the first, first big proper commercial production of La Casa de Bernarda Alba in Spain. That actually is quite a short period between 61 and 64, and we'll see when we look at some of the, the quotations from the censors that something seems to have shifted between just in that little period in the early 60s. And you can spot it quite precisely, and I shall point out to you precisely where this little shift can be, uh, can be seen. Then, after 64, it's, it's pretty much accepted now that this is a stageable play. Um, there are one or two reports still get written, but essentially once it's been done once, then, then they're not that likely to, to change their minds and, and ban it again. Um, so they, they were then authorizing it for fairly small-scale productions in 66 and 72 to 73. Um, the 1976 Teatre Slava production, directed by Ángel Fatio, um, was just brought up a moment ago <laughs> by somebody who saw it, um, was then the next stage on in the staging of La Casa de Bernarda Alba in Spain, because this was the first sort of really... Um, inventive, um, radi radical production in its staging. Um, it really sort of broke new ground with, with what La Casa de Bernarda Alba was going to look like on the stage and sound like since it had a man playing Bernarda. <laughs> uh, so a, a, a radical kind of production by somebody who had come out of the Teatro Independiente movement, Ángel Fatio, uh, had been working in, in small student theatre groups and, uh, and doing quite interesting radical stuff through the early 60s uh, and into the 70s. So this is the first post-Franco Lorca, but infuriatingly, there's no file on it <laughs> amongst the censorship documents. Censorship was still operating in 1976, and it will have been subject to, the, to, to that process of approval, but for some reason that file has vanished. It, it seems, can't possibly be a coincidence that some of the most interesting and controversial cases of theater censorship <laughs> are the ones where the file seems to have been removed for some reason. <laughs> Somebody somewhere was, was cherry-picking. Um, because, well, why? Was it embarrassing in some way for, for somebody's <coughs> memory from the regime? But anyway, annoyingly, there's no file on it. Um, and then, by 1978, censorship had been finally dismantled. Um, February 78 was the end of the story. The censorship had been pretty much crumbling all the way through the 70s, really. It became more and more inconsistent in its application. 78, 
Um, it, they stopped it altogether, but they still operated a kind of censorship. Some of the same people, the same personnel were there, including Jose Maria Ortiz, the man who had been secretary of this committee ever since the late 1940s. <laughs> he is the main presence that runs all the way through this. He's running now a Comisión de Calificación de Espectáculos, which is deciding on um, appropriate audience age limits. So they're still operating in a way, but these same guys who before could say, nah, banned, were now having to <laughs> tragar saliva uh, and say, well, all right, <laughs> audience is over 18. Um, although sometimes they've totally changed their story and now they're saying, oh, excellent work, yes, anybody over 14 can see this. Um, <clears throat> that, that is another interesting moment in the whole history of the censorship <laughs> thing, is the transition into, into that post-censorship phase. And then finally, they ditched any pretensions at theatre censorship in 1985, when there was just no longer any government body that, that could operate any kind of censorship. Um, they were still insisting on making it over 18, but that's not all that significant, really. Um, they were stamping an over 18 certificate on all kinds of things right through the 50s and 60s. Um, <laughs> uh, partly as a, as, a, as a recognition of the way in which theatre clubs would operate. Um, they were sort of open to members of the society and so, you know, there weren't going to be children involved anyway. Um, <clears throat> they, all of those authorizations in the 60s were without cuts, interestingly. They could have been chopping out bits of challenging or dirty language, but actually they decided not to. Once they'd authorized this play, they authorized it in its entirety. There's Ismael Merlo. <laughs> this is just, uh, uh, just uh, by way of illustration. So this is the, the 1976 uh, Fazio production with a male Bernarda. <laughs> um, and they might have had some trouble with that, actually, the censors, which is why, why it's so infuriating that we can't see the file. Was it set out in advance that they were going to cast a man in this? Presumably, because for your application for censorship, you had to fill out the names of all the cast and the name of the director and the name of the designer and the costume designer and so on. So you had to give those details and that must have been on the list and they might have been worried about that still in 1976. This was dangerous, simply casting a man in, a, in, in the role of a woman, especially in, in this kind of play. It looked like an interesting set as well. I haven't really read up about this production very much. What was the effect of all the what appears to be kind of uh, cushioned stuff with ropes. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> I remember that Merlo was very well known. And oh, yes. yeah. they couldn't go against him. And he was, you know, respected like yes. footballer oh, yeah. now. So they couldn't do it. Yeah. He, oh, yes, they he had, personally had They had to bring that, that the instability, that they was not stable. The family yes. was not stable. And he, they did it with the movements. <laughs> it's a bit like Victor Garcia's yeah. canvas thing for Yerma. Um, <clears throat> uh, so a similar effect. They must have all been sort of yeah. walking around like this, which was definitely the effect on the Yerma canvas thing. But even more, they, they were sort of doing like um, spacewalking, yeah. moonwalking. They were having to go, <laughs> boing, boing. Um, because they redid it in Edinburgh in the 1980s at the Edinburgh Festival with Nuri Aisper still playing Yerma. Um, <clears throat> So here's the next, the next um, angle on this, is um, the reputation of Lorca himself. 
as a politically dangerous figure. Well, or rather, as a figure that the regime didn't really want to talk about because um, they didn't want to talk about how he was killed and why he was killed. Um, and they were very uncomfortable with the international regime. I suppose that they would, were claiming that there was a kind of international campaign going on to put the blame for Lorca's death at the hands of the regime and so on. They really wanted to avoid that subject. Um, but on the other hand, it's quite clear from a fairly early stage that it's not as if they were interested in totally banning Lorca from cultural life in Spain. I mean, it would have been impractical to do so. But it's, it's not really the case that throughout this period they simply didn't want Lorca's work to be staged. Not at all. Um, <clears throat> and you can see a sort of a shift going on through these episodes here. This guy, Guimarcindo Montes Agudo, sounds like a very interesting figure. He was um, uh, a film critic, mostly, and, uh, and an old phalangista, a member of the fascist party, um, <clears throat> and was around for quite a long time in the, in the censorship system. And he actually was fairly favorable towards Lorca's work, generally. We'll, we'll see the kinds of things he says a, a bit later. So here he is proposing back in 1943 in that, in that f for that first proposed production, we should give the impression that we've risen above the passions and unpleasant memories of the past, and that we do not confuse political suspicion with unthinking vindictiveness or the systematic rejection of a set of values that we did not share. So he's already, I think it's because he can see that most of the people around him are doing this. They are thinking, let us pretend that Lorca doesn't exist at all and try to exclude him altogether. Montesagudo is already arguing against that apparent political consensus in the regime. And 1948, he's saying a similar thing. It's time to authorize productions in Spain of Lorca's theater, which has, after all, achieved global recognition. You, you can't pretend that Lorca doesn't exist because the rest of the world know that, he's, that he exists and that his work is amazing and has been and is being produced out there um, in the rest of the world. So we begin to look more and more ridiculous if we don't allow it to be staged in Spain. Even if only as a useful political gesture, wrenching a banner or a flag, it's bandera in Spanish, but I'm thinking of a banner under which you march. Um, <clears throat> pulling it out of the hands of the opposition. So the opposition, what opposition? There wasn't any in Spain in 1948. Well, they're imagining a, a kind of virtual opposition or an opposition that is abroad. The, the conspiracy that is operating against Franco's Spain. This is, of course, during the period when Spain is still diplomatically isolated, <coughs> completely cut off, um, not allowed to join the United Nations and so on. So this is very much the period of, of talking about there being an anti-Spain con conspiracy out there. Uh, and they, the anti-Spain conspiracy is allegedly trying to use Lorca to get at the regime. And so how do you combat that? Well, you, you reappropriate Lorca for us. For Spain and take it out of take him out of their hands. The business of taking the, the banner or the flag away from the opposition will recur. It's one of Montesagudo's <laughs> favourite topoi, <laughs> as we'll see. Um, <clears throat> I recommend approval of La Zapatera Prodigiosa since it has been decided not to obstruct the performance of Lorca's work, 1951. Here's somebody recognizing that there appears to have been a kind of official decision now. Um, so the, the, the shift has begun to take place, which is partly a shift of, um, of Spain out of the diplomatic darkness into trying to engage with the rest of Western Europe, with the United States, 
selling itself as an anti-communist uh, bulwark of civilization now. So as part of that, now it's not just Montesagudo who thinks we should be claiming Lorca for ourselves, it's the regime appears to be beginning to do so as well. So that they're getting a more interesting idea, sort of real politique, about what, what you can do with Lorca. And some of Lorca's plays are being authorized for performance at this time, just not the more tricky ones, not Bernardo Alba. Um, here's Montesagudo again. Can we really still tolerate the continued absence from Spanish stages of Lorca's theater, which now has universal status? He's tossing out rhetorical questions now. <laughs> surely, surely, we've grown up, haven't we? Um, and then there's a, there, there is this interesting situation in 1953. There's a, an exchange of letters between the man in the ministry and the civil governor in Zaragoza. And he writes to the civil governor saying, well, we are thinking of approving this production of La Casa de Bernardo Alba, but we thought we'd better check with you in case there are local circumstances that make it inadvisable, which is a, a very fascinating kind of sideline of the whole censorship business. It, it was something that, that they were trying to balance up lots of different interests um, in Spain at the time, and lots of different strands in the regime. It wasn't monolithic. It wasn't that this was a sort of totally autocratic dictatorship. Um, they were, in a sense, trying really sort of honestly to, to try to, to work with a cultural system that would not cause offense to the church, the phalange, the, the civil governors in the cities, the army. Um, they were sort of at the center of a, a tricky political balancing act that they were uh, sort of reluctantly taking part in these censors and the civil servants that ran the, the department. Um, and so he refers to the unhelpful political circumstances surrounding the author. He's come to be regarded as a martyred victim of our war of liberation. And in general, I believe that any action we can take to discredit this politically motivated falsehood at home and abroad should be seen as positive. So here is somebody pretty much officially <coughs> proposing now the, the strategy of We've got to not let them use Lorca against us. We've got to kind of make Lorca more normal here. And let's, let's allow something like this. Why not? There's the banner again. <laughs> Good old Gumercindo <laughs> still fighting that battle. Um, <clears throat> and then there was an interesting episode about Mariana Pineda in, as late as 1966-67. Um, Fraga more or less his own reasons decided to ban Mariana Pineda, mostly because the people who were planning to put it on sort of jumped the gun and started giving interviews to the press and some French newspaper picked it up and trumpeted the fact that finally Mariana Pineda was going to be performed in Spain and Fraga said, oi, hang on, we haven't approved this yet. <laughs> Sorry, you can't do it. Yeah, so there. Um, so then his director general was advising him that this was not a very good idea, that they should approve it. Goes against your general policy of attempting to normalize the Lorca issue and the Machado issue. Two great icons of Republican Spain now that, that they wanted to yeah, take away from the enemy. So that's the background um, with a sort of a battle going on about, uh, about who owns Lorca, in a sense, um, and whether it is politically dangerous to, to allow his works to be staged? Or is it more dangerous to prevent them from being staged? So La Casa de Bernarda itself then 
will trace some, some views. This is a bit misleading in a sense in that this is very, I've selected some very small bits and there were actually many more opinions expressed than these. But I've carefully selected the bits that show a sort of progression through the 40s into the 70s. Um, and they're making remarks like this. Harsh language. Lenguaje descarnado is, is the phrase in Spanish. Bitter, penetrating crudeness, class hatred, rivalry between sisters desperate for a man, stark flashes of literariness, art for art's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Art for art's sake. There's a kind of, um, kind of degenerate art message in there, isn't there? What was the, the phrase in German? Kunst, whatever it is, Kunst. Um, uh, the, the art for art's sake that is degenerate because it doesn't, doesn't have moral values attached to it. Um, that sounds like a sort of rather contradictory list, but I think <laughs> in mind of that sense, it's entirely consistent. You can sell tickets from that. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> These are all reasons why it should be banned. Completely unacceptable for all of those reasons. But yeah, it sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> let's, let's see that play. Mauricio de Begonia, a friar, crudeness of this kind, so they're worried to begin with about language really and about the kind of emotional rawness that is present on stage. Although tolerated in literature at some of the finest moments of our past, I suppose he means the golden age, is not appropriate for present circumstances. Um, so in the 19, late 1940s they're, they're still in a kind of ideology that is obsessed with trying to get things under control to try to establish a kind of moral um, norm on Spanish society after all the chaos and, uh, uh, and excessive freedoms of the Republic and so on. They're still very much in a, in, a, in a rhetoric of get things under control, establish moral values. And so, poof, no thank you, we can't have La Casa de Venada Alba at a time like this. So it's still language and sexuality that's bothering them. Um, here's Gomercindo again, with his flag, his banner. Rough-edged and daring, but beautiful. If we were to impose cuts on it, we would destroy it, amputate its poetic qualities, destroy its dramatic structure, and moreover, provide another opportunity for campaigns under this banner that we should have pulled down a long time ago. Get that flag out of their hands. So here is somebody um, who... He's, he's in a way now, by 1953, an old fascist, in a way becoming kind of opposition almost. Um, he's still part of the regime, but the Falange by now is well out of favor. It is the Catholic organizations that are in control now. Um, and it's no longer a, a, a fascist looking kind of Spain. It's moving now. And so he can sort of, he's sort of uh, taking a, a little maverick kind of stand here in a way. Um, but other people are saying similar things. They are recognizing what they tend to describe as literary quality in this text. Can you read that at all? Sort of. There's uh, the, that friar's uh, particular report. I just love it because of the little logo in the top, <laughs> right, left-hand corner. The seraphic messenger. I think it's the, the bare arm is presumably the, the arm of a worker, um, and the other arm is an ecclesiastical arm, <coughs> but it's uh, sort of partnership with the poor or something like that. Is that what it is? Um, sensibilidad de público is what he's particularly concerned about. It's the sensibilities of the, of the audience. So they are 
concerned about um, the way in which audiences are likely to react to the kind of thing that is put in front of them. And they're trying to establish the consensual assumption <coughs> that audiences don't want this kind of stuff, this dirty kind of stuff. Audiences want safer things, moral things, is what they keep on arguing. Um, and so, yeah, and then he suggests some cuts if they do approve it. <clears throat> so, more priests. And then by 1961, actually, they're getting more indignant and horrified in their expressions about what's in La Casa de Bernardo Alba than they were in the 40s and 50s, curiously. Um, <clears throat> it is now the church that has really taken over the process uh, and so several priests get to express opinions on La Casa de Bernada Alba and express this kind of horrified stuff. Everything that a family should not be. He's wondering, is it a satire? Is it a burla? Is it a simbolo? Well, well done, yes, simbolo. <laughs> Spot on there, mate. Um, but he's wondering if it's some kind of parody, presumably. Surely Lorca cannot have intended this seriously. I love this Gan Antonio Garau stuff. Um, in a family environment that is harsh, distorted, full of rage and voluptuousness, this makes all the women, and he says, todas, it, or it's in inverted commas, todas, um, say everything about everyone because they're convinced that they're all as bad as one another. <gasps> Spanish women are not like that, are they? Oh my God. Um, <clears throat> is there anything good or exemplary in this malformed monstrosity? Este engendro. Um, so they're, they, they're, they're worried about effects on audiences. They seem to think that they're going to stir up people's passions excessively. Sounds extraordinarily sort of 19th century or something, doesn't it? But this is the kind of Spain that they were still trying to hold on to at that point. Um, it, they're, they're, I think they're getting desperate now, actually, in a sense. That is why there's this sort of extreme tone here. Interestingly, and here is the shift. <coughs> Avelino Esteban y Romero, who had been horrified only weeks before, now responds in a much more measured tones in a second report in 1961. This is, remember, for the production that was still banned. But he starts to say, um, after lengthy discussions with colleagues in the department, <laughs> from a strictly moral point of view, I confirm the reasons for prohibition expressed in my earlier report. However, since this play cannot in general be regarded from an official perspective as a danger to public morality, and since it does not convey any argument attacking Christian dogma or moral principles, so he's, he's now sort of focusing much more on does it really actually sort of contain anything subversive? He shifts the ground away from the moral towards the political, interestingly. Um, but rather, a story depicting a way of life that we would all condemn, albeit in a different way and with a different denouement, and since there is scope for moderating particular crude expressions that may be offensive to Spanish spectators, it would be appropriate, blah, blah, blah. So there's obviously some pressure being put on from somewhere else, <coughs> politically, on these censors, and including the, the church censors, to now start to say, well, yeah, <laughs> we've got to come up to date a bit here. And as long as it isn't actually politically subversive, then perhaps it can go. But actually, still in 1961, they didn't. By 1963, the tone has changed pretty much altogether. Um, Marcelo Arroyta Jauregui is another old phalangista, if I remember rightly, 
Um, the play's more than familiar to everyone now. They're taking it for granted that everybody's read the thing, even if you haven't had a chance to see it anywhere. It has a tragic spirit, and in its time it had testimonial value as a protest play. The drama of those imprisoned women thirsting for a man is presented in a tragic manner, softened by the poetic tenor of the language. But it is governed throughout by a clear moral sense in terms of what is told. <gasps> this is utterly new. <laughs> Only two years before they were saying this is absolutely immoral and unacceptable. Um, this guy isn't a priest, but he feels able now to declare a thoroughly morally positive play, interestingly. And Artola, who is a priest, is only able to sort of say, oh, well, there are certain difficulties that could be mentioned, but the literary quality rescues it from them. And no more, full stop. Um, and this is the production that was authorized and went ahead and was the sort of the big commercial um, premiere. By 1978, when all they're doing is saying, uh, stamp over 14, um, Romero puts in this interesting comment. I believe that a number of sexual taboos that previously burdened our society have now been lifted and that audiences of 14 and over are perfectly capable of accepting this place celebration of freedom and fierce denunciation of sexual repression, um, <clears throat> a much more realistic appreciation of, of how audiences are capable of responding to this play. The audiences have grown up. The regime, in a sense, has, has now had to recognize, well, or the leftover of the regime in 1978. Um, <clears throat> has now had to acknowledge that. Um, so there's an interesting story there going through these censorship files of, of the appropriation and misappropriation and, and reappropriation of Lorca. And La Casa de Renata Alba runs all the way through there, partly as a political issue, partly as a moral issue, partly as a ling linguistic and aesthetic and theatrical issue. Um, and all being bandied about by these people in the regime and with behind the scenes intervention from all sorts of other people as well, including the, the minister Fraga and company. Um, so I hope that sort of <laughs> helps to give more of a sense of we've talked about Lorca a lot back in the 20s and 30s. And this is Lorca's passage towards the present day. Um, and I think some of that helps to explain why certain stereotypes built up around Lorca um, the sort of stereotypes that David was referring to, some of the cliches about Lorca, some of them were formed in opposition to what the regime was trying to do with Lorca. So, you know, the other side tried, tried to make Lorca into the <coughs> radical anti-Franco playwright. Um, and so uh, all of these things are, are historically grounded and historically contingent and shift over time. Thank you.